0: James chapter 1, as we're making our way uh, through this uh, short but powerful letter written in the probably early 40s by the brother, half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We come to uh, verses 13 through 18, but just for context, I'd like to begin reading in verse 12. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word, James chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creation. When the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. And we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would grant to us ears to hear and eyes to see the things that Christ has done for us. Grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, let me ask you, how do we respond when we face trials in life? Do we take James' advice when we encounter various trials and rejoice, knowing that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness and that the trials and tribulations we face in this life are not a sign of God's displeasure, but actually are a sign that God loves us and is working in our life. Is joy our initial response when we face trials? Or, on the other hand, when we face trials, do sometimes they get the better of us? Do they somehow, rather than uh, relying upon God's grace and spirit in order to endure the trial with joy, do we rather rely upon our own flesh and seek to please ourselves and perhaps even allow these trials to, uh, to make us bitter in our hearts? Oftentimes, trials do not work good in our lives, but actually make us worse people. And when we do sin in those trials, since we do believe and confess that all things come from God, even the evil he allows us to experience in this life, sometimes we're tempted, after we sin and fall in the face of trials, to point the finger at God and to say, how could you let this happen? You're the one who's responsible for my sin Because you sent this trial in my life. Well, that is a very real thing, and it happens more often than you think. And that's why in our passage today, when James is reflecting upon trials in our life, he gives us a very serious warning not to think that God is responsible for the sin in our life, not to point the finger of blame at him, but rather to realize that the finger should be pointing at us. You see, James has begun his book by explaining how God uses various trials in our life to refine our faith and to cause us to become more and more like Christ. And he will continue to do that until we are perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so James encourages us to seek wisdom from God, promising that if we ask in faith, it will be given to us. And as we look forward to those glories which await us in Christ Jesus, as we look forward to sharing in his exaltation, we're also reminded of the fact that we identify presently with his humiliation as we endure the fellowship of his sufferings. You see, as Paul tells us in Romans 8, we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified together with him. When we receive that crown of life, which God has promised to all who love him. And this is the blessing that we look forward to with joy, even as we endure trials in this life. And yet there's this warning, this serious warning that James says in verse 12, let no one say when he is tempted. Now we might be tempted, no pun intended, to think that James is changing the subject, first talking about trials and then talking about temptation. You would think that if you read it in English, but in Greek, it's very clear he's not changing the subject. For indeed, the very same Greek word translated trials can also be translated temptation. It's the same word testing and temptation, the same Greek word, and it depends upon the context how it ought to be translated and I think, actually, if you look there in verse 13, perhaps the first instance of that word, it still should be translated tested. Let no one say when he is tested, I am being tempted by God. For you see, every test entails some sort of temptation, depending on how we respond to those trials. Are we going to respond positively with joy, or are we going to respond negatively with bitterness and pointing the finger and shifting the blame. Now, certainly, James affirms the fact that God sends trials to test us and to test our faith. He's already said that in verses 2 and 3. He said it in verse 12. He, he, in the next chapter, he mentions Abraham and the fact when Abraham was tested by God, referencing perhaps the most famous instance in Scripture where God tests somebody. In Genesis chapter 22, we read, God tested Abraham, and he told Abraham to offer up his son Isaac. Certainly, James is not denying the fact that God tests us in this life. But, while God certainly tests us, James makes very clear, he never tempts us. So what's the difference? Well, the difference is in the intent. What is God's intent when he sends trials in our life? Is he trying to trip us up? Is he trying to make us stumble and fall into sin? Well, certainly not. That's the furthest thing from God's mind, as James will make clear. God is is for us. He is not against us. He would never uh, intentionally make us fall. You see... To prove that point, James points us to God's nature. What type of God is he? He tells us that God cannot be tempted. See, God is not the author of evil. He is completely holy. And James reminds us of that fact, that God is so holy, he cannot sin. You see, boys and girls, there are some things that God cannot do. The author to the Hebrews tells us that God cannot lie. You see, it is contrary to his nature. It's not as if there's some sort of power greater than him, something that he is unable to do because it's more powerful than him. No, God cannot lie because it is contrary to who he is. John tells us that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And the prophet Habakkuk says of God, you are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. So James reminds us of God's perfectly holy nature, that he cannot be tempted with sin. We call that that he is impeccable. He is unable to sin. He would never do such a thing because it is contrary to his nature. And since tempting somebody, trying to get them to stumble and fall, is itself sinful, James says God would never, ever do that. He himself is not tempted and he tempts no one. Well, if God doesn't tempt us, then who does? Well, the next culprit, I suppose we could say, is Satan. As a matter of fact, Scripture itself designates Satan as the tempter. He's the one who, for example, tempted Adam and Eve in the garden and tempted Christ in the wilderness. And we know from Scripture that God allows Satan to tempt us, but as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, never beyond our ability. Since God is faithful, he will never tempt us beyond our ability, but will always give us a way of escape. Perhaps one of the most well-known portions of Scripture that teaches the fact that God allows Satan to tempt people and to test them uh, is the book of Job. In the opening of the book of Job, we read that uh, Satan appeared before the Lord and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Now, I don't know about you, but if Satan appeared before God's throne, I would not want God to bring up my name before Satan. But that's precisely what God does. Why would he do such a thing? Well, because it's God's intent to test his servant Job. But in order to do that, he allows Satan to tempt him. Satan, of course, responds by saying, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And we see a very clear teaching that God allows Satan to do his bidding. And although it is Satan's intention to tempt us, to trip us up, make us fall, and curse God to his face. It is God's holy, pure, and most wise intention to test his servants. And so in one trial, in one instance, we can have two completely different intentions. Satan means it for evil, but God means it for good. Just as Joseph could tell his brothers in Egypt, you guys meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Now, while James does not deny the role of Satan in tempting us, chapter 4, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Ultimately, we cannot blame Satan either for when we stumble and fall into sin. You see, rather than pointing the blame at God or even Satan, James, in our passage today, places the responsibility for our sins squarely on our shoulders. We ultimately bear the responsibility for our own sins. That's what James says in verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. This is a vivid illustration that perhaps is lost on us, since many of us aren't fishermen, and we didn't grow up along the Sea of Galilee, but we know that James did, and this would have been a familiar illustration to him. He uses this illustration of catching a fish. And in order, boys and girls, to catch a fish, you use what's called a lure, something that's shiny. Fish like to eat shiny things. But attached to that lure is a hook. When you lure that fish in and the fish takes the bite, then you can drag it in and pull it to shore. Well, this is what happens, James says, when we are lured and enticed by our own desires. We see something shiny in front of us, and we want it. It's our own sinful passions that lead us to destruction. And as James elaborates what that destruction looks like in verse 15, he mixes metaphors going from a fishing metaphor to a childbirth metaphor. He says, when desire has conceived, it gives birth. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. The idea here is that temptation and sin is a process. It's not something that just happens and is done with. No, it is a lengthy process that ultimately results in death. You see, these sinful spawns which come from us ultimately come out of our own hearts. There's no one else we can blame except for ourselves. It's our desire that entices us. It's our sin that's conceived and gives birth. And ultimately, it's our decision which could lead unto death if we, in, if we uh, continue on that path to destruction. Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 7, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Now, we're not denying the fact, and Scripture clearly teaches the fact, that our environments oftentimes make us who we are, and that there's other contributing factors to to who we are and the decisions we make. But at the end of the day, James makes very clear that each and every one of us are responsible for our own sin and there is no one ultimately to point the finger to except at ourselves. The heart of man is deceitfully wicked, the prophet Jeremiah tells us, so we must always be on guard against deceiving ourselves and shifting the blame. Ultimately, that's what happened after the first sin, isn't it? When the Lord comes to Adam and he said, Adam, where are you? Adam said, I hid myself. I was afraid and God said, did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat? And then what did he do? Did he confess his sin? Did he own up to his decision? Did he say, yes, I was lured and enticed by my own desire? No, he shifted the blame. Well, you know, the woman that you gave me, she's the one who told me to do it. And you notice there, it seems like he's blaming Eve. But ultimately, who is he blaming? The woman that you gave me. You should have given me a better woman, God. He wouldn't have led me astray. No, we all need to own our own decisions. That's James' point here. Well, if God is not the author of evil, if he's not the one who would tempt us and try to trip us up in this life, then what does God do? Well, in verse 17, James makes clear that he is the overflowing fountain of all good. To quote the words of the Belgic Confession, God sends us good and perfect gifts. Because God works all things together for good, James says that every good gift comes from God. And because he uses these gifts to perfect our faith, he can call them perfect gifts. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Now, you'll notice they're the heavenly origins of these gifts. They don't come from within. What comes from within? Well, James has already told us it's, that's where our temptations come from. That's where our passions are, where they lead us astray. No, the good and perfect gifts come from above. What a far cry from the idea that God has opposed us, trying to trip us up. No, James says the only thing that God gives you is a good and perfect gift. Now let me pause here and highlight the fact that the good and perfect gifts that God gives us don't always look like good and perfect gifts. They don't come neatly packaged with the nice bow on top of them. No, James isn't saying that everything that God allows to happen in our life is good. He's saying that God takes everything that happens in our life, including the evil, including the trials and tribulations, And turns them to our good. And yet, as far as God is concerned, he is showering good and perfect gifts upon us, even in the form of trials and temptations. And so that is who God is. That's where the gifts come from. They are coming from above, from, as he calls God, the Father of lights. This is a very unique title. The only time we see it in Scripture and I think that James's idea here, referring to God as the father of lights, is he's referring to him as the creator of the heavenly lights. Think of the sun, the moon, and the stars, those lights that we see in the expanse of the heavens. God is their father because he is the creator of all things. And yet, unlike the sun, the moon, and the stars, which constantly are changing and shifting, at least from our perspective, Right, boys and girls, if you go outside and, and you stay out there long enough, you can see that the sun has moved and that the shadows that were being cast by the, the, the sunlight have actually shifted and moved throughout the day. And you can do that every single day. The sun appears to, to move. And the moon, likewise, and the stars. Everything is shifting and changing. But unlike those heavenly bodies, James tells us God never changes. He never changes. Here again, James is pointing us to God's nature. He already highlighted the fact that God is holy and cannot be tempted with evil and never would tempt us. Here he highlights that God does not change. We call that immutability. He does not change. Well, why would that be comforting to us? Because he is undeterred in his purpose to save us in Christ he will ever bless us with his good and perfect gifts, taking even the evil he permits to happen to us and turning it for a good, and nothing will change that because God does not change. To prove that and to illustrate one of God's per, uh, good and perfect gifts, James, in verse 18, highlights the gift of Regeneration. What Paul calls in Ephesians 2 being made alive or Jesus in John chapter 3 being born again or literally born from above is one of the chief gifts that God has given to us. He has, uh, 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 notice here again, James returns to this childbirth metaphor. Look there in verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth. This is a childbirth metaphor. It's the same word that's used Uh, Previously in our passage. But notice the contrast. Whereas we are only able to bring forth sin and death, in verse 15, God causes us to be born again unto life and righteousness. This is the childbirth that you want. This is the being born again that Jesus says is necessary in order to enter the kingdom of God. And as he says in John 3, so here, it, where does it come from? It comes from above. We don't make ourselves born again. We can't do that on our own. No, we need it from God coming down from the Father of lights. And since we could never save ourselves or even incline ourselves to be saved, It must be according to sovereign grace. That's James' point in verse 18 when he says, of his own will, not our will, but of his own will, he brought us forth, caused us to be made alive even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. This was according to his own good pleasure. God made us alive because he wanted to, because he loved us. And so if he doesn't change, and that's his attitude from the beginning, then we can be confident that he will continue to love us and continue to shower his good and perfect gifts upon us. Well, how is it that he does that? How, how did he make us alive in Christ Jesus? James tells us he did it by the word of truth. You see, since faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, As Paul says in Romans 10, we know that faith is created through the preaching of the gospel. In the same way that the Father of lights in the very beginning said, let there be light and there was light, so also through the preaching of the gospel, he causes light to shine in our dark hearts. He creates life out of death by speaking the word of truth and causing us to become alive in Christ. And he does that in order that we might be, James says, a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, boys and girls, the first first fruits were the the, the fruit that would be picked from the initial gleanings. As soon as the trees, as soon as the the vines, as soon as the fruit and, and crops were beginning to be ripe, that first initial gleaning would be picked and would be dedicated to God. It was called the firstfruits in the Old Testament to show that uh, it was a sign of gratitude to God for, for blessing them, but also to show that ultimately the whole harvest belonged to God, and God was sharing the rest with his people. Well, in the New Testament, that term, firstfruits, is used of Christ Jesus. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 calls Jesus the first fruits. Of the dead, the first person to be to be made alive, to be resurrected well, if it 's true of christ it 's also true of us who are united to him by faith and that 's james 's point here is that God is going is setting about to renew all things. He is renewing this fallen and sinful world. He is making a new creation, and we are the first part of that new creation. those who are united to Christ. By faith. And so if he did this in the beginning, being the father of light, speaking the world into existence, we see since he does not change, he is pleased to continue to do that with us today. And so the creator has determined to recreate all things and nothing will deter him from that task. He began with the resurrection of Christ from the dead and continues by making us alive through his powerful word, and he continues to perfect our faith, making us more and more like Christ through the good and perfect gifts he sends our way. And so we as Christians can take comfort in who our God is. He is holy. He would never tempt us. He is unchangeable, and he is always pleased to bless us in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's give thanks. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you do not change. And of your own will, you caused us to be made alive through the word of truth, the gospel of Christ Jesus. We thank you that you send upon us every good and perfect gift, and that it is not in your nature to tempt us or to cause us to stumble and fall. Oh Lord, we pray that we would remember those things even when we are faced with trials and temptations in this life. We pray that we would rejoice as we encounter various trials, knowing that you are at work in us, perfecting your new creation. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.